Only take care and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen, and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Make them known to your children and your children's children. From the book of Deuteronomy, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Brothers and sisters, we began this morning by praying the following collect. O Lord, we pray that your grace may always precede and follow after us, that we may continually be given to good works. Given the content of the readings for this morning, I thought what I would do this morning in the homily is offer a catechesis on the subject of grace and good works. How it is that God, by his grace, transforms our interior lives and thereby transforms our works, our outward lives. The readings for this morning are arranged so as to focus our attention on the will of God as expressed in the commandments in Holy Scripture. Jesus eviscerates the Pharisees for their hypocrisy. Some of Jesus' disciples have not washed their hands before eating in the proper way. As it said in Louisiana, they must not have had mamas eat without washing their hands. Tick, tisk, tisk. The tradition of washing is for, going, for after going through the marketplace, and the idea is that it is next to impossible to go out into the marketplace and not be in contact with something which could defile you. could be meat which has been offered to idols. It could be something as simple as blood. It might be that you got touched by a Gentile. And I suspect that many had forgotten the why behind this ritual, and now kept it as a practice simply because it was what they had learned. This is a constant struggle when it comes to ritual, and let me say that the reason many Christians today seek to be free of ritual and liturgy is the opposite concern from that of the Pharisees. The Pharisees did these things out of extreme scrupulosity. They did not want to violate a single commandment. Their religious lives were not about heart and mind, the interior integration of the spiritual life. They were about outward conformity as a sign of their own righteousness. And lest you think you might not be one of them, I know some of you are counting the number of times you're making the sign of the cross, judging others for not doing the same, looking about you and saying, oh, I didn't know I was better than the people sitting next to me. We all do this. Ritual signs as a sign of our own righteousness. And the Lord's response to this is first to recall the Pharisees to the law as written. He points out their hypocrisy. They go through the rituals, but their hearts are astray. They worship in vain. You might say they do not worship in spirit and in truth, and they teach doctrines and practices that are not commanded in the actual law. Jesus raises this example of hypocrisy surrounding this term korban. In those days, an interpretation of the fifth commandment, you shall honor your father and mother, went as follows. You must take care of them in their old age. But, and this is still common today, they might not want to move into a home brimming with their own grandchildren. By the way, if that's you today, that's okay. That's totally okay. You don't have to move in with your children. 
And you don't actually have to invite your grandparents or your parents to move in with you. But the idea was that you would save up for your own parents' retirement. But some were essentially gaming the system by using those funds or setting aside those funds for temple taxes, sacrifices, and so forth. Saying this is korban, this is given to God already, and so you can't have it. And you know, how can you fault someone for honoring God among their, above their own parents? Jesus says that they are making the void, they're making void the word of God by their tradition that they have handed down. In other words, the commandments are being overturned by these rituals. In their attempts to scrupulously follow the law, they have become perverse, hypocritical, cruel even. But there's something even more, even more vicious. They have, become, they have come to believe and begun to believe so completely in the sufficiency of their own works that they have forgotten the mercy and grace of God. They have traded inward transformation for outward conformity. Listen again to what Moses writes in this introduction to the Ten Commandments in Deuteronomy. Only take care, he says, and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen, and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. What is it that these people have seen? They've seen nothing less than the parting of the waters of the Red Sea, being taken out of captivity in Egypt. They have been saved. And the Lord's teaching is this, building on Deuteronomy, that all manner of evil things come into a person not from the outside, but from within. From the interior life. From inward dispositions. From disordered desires. This is concurrent with some of what was said last week. That our spiritual condition is such that earthly food is of no avail. The body itself is of no avail. It is rather the heart that is at issue. This is actually something that the 12-step programs have to teach us Christians. right? It's not the thing you're addicted to that's the problem. It's not. It's your attitude that's the problem. It's how you think. It's the habits of your mind that are a problem. And you cover over them with the addiction. And here we can say that Jesus is not speaking of that four-chambered organ in the, in the chest, but rather our inmost thoughts, our inmost feelings. In the ancient world, and especially the understanding of the Old and New Testaments, the heart is the home of the affections, as well as the seat of the will. It is where you think intellectually, but also where you consider your actions. Now, this is not about the exercise of some enlightenment reason, but so much as it is the exercise of the affections toward or against the virtues. Jesus says it very simply, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts. A person does not commit acts of lust, for instance, in a vacuum. These are done because the heart seeks to fulfill unnatural appetites. And these appetites are not just for sex, but for the expiation of anger, 
revenge with regard to deeply held resentments, or simply a brutal use of other persons for our own ends. Sometimes they are caused by deep and lasting psychological trauma, a kind of wound upon the soul. Murder also, if you think about it, doesn't come about in a vacuum, but is fueled by hatred and malice, by dark rebellion in the soul. And it may be worse than that. The human capacity for evil is such that we can delude ourselves into thinking that all is well as long as we go through the outward motions, saying and doing all the right things. We even think that our most shallow thoughts and weakest emotions will save us from becoming cruel. I hear this all the time, you know, and people say, yeah, but, you know, I'm one of the good people, right? Like, I'm a good person. Like, I, you know, I think I'm fundamentally good. I'm nice. I'm not about to murder anyone. But I recall that famous quip, well, at least it's famous among our sort, of Stanley Hauerwas, who says, you begin by singing some sappy, sentimental hymn, and then you pray some pointless prayer, and the next thing you know, you've murdered your best friend. Turning to the reading from Deuteronomy, we read Moses' preamble to this rendering the Ten Commandments in Deuteronomy 5. The exhortation is to care for your own soul. Another way to say it would be care for your heart. I know it's popular in some Christian circles to say, check your heart. Well, that's not bad. It's actually true. Check your heart. Consider it. Care for your interior life. Care for the depths of who you are down to the deepest and inmost thoughts and intentions. Start to understand how you think. I recently read that the most consistent killer of kidney transplant recipients is this. They forget to take their medicine. Consider it. They spend years, sometimes decades, on dialysis, which is very, very unpleasant. Involves getting an IV just about every day, sometimes for several hours, day after day after day. And they wait for years on transplant lists. A kidney patient's life is a series of outward habits that keep them alive. And if they get a kidney, it is often from a donor they know personally, who sacrifices their own health for the health of a friend. But after all of that, after all of that misery, after all of those outward habits, they often forget to take the anti-rejection meds that keep them from rejecting that new kidney. It seems that having had their lives given back to them, they forget that they are recipients of a great gift that they are still sick and still need help. And this forgetfulness is deadly. They stop acting like people whose lives are on the line. They stop thinking like people who are a day away from death. And the research shows that people are more apt in general to consistently give medications to their dogs than to themselves. 
Much of the exhortation here by Moses, take care and keep your soul diligently, is a call to watchfulness and diligence over internal things. But how can we do this? How can we, divided and dissonant as we are, with distractions in our minds and disordered desires, possibly do this? We are insane. We resonate so deeply with the Apostle Paul. I challenge any one of you to read Romans 7 and not feel immense compassion and empathy for this man. I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but the very thing I hate. And if you don't read that text and say, dang it, that's me! I don't know what to tell you. Probably just, like, you're, in, you're doubly insane. We are, in a word, powerless. The fault of the Pharisees, and the fault of many today, is to say essentially this. I'm essentially a great person. All I need is some rules. If you give me rules, I'll follow them. But here's the problem. Rules are good. Paul says that the law is good. The law is holy. But the problem is not the rules, but the heart, the mind, the will. We need a change of heart, a renovation of the will, and transformation of the mind. And the Christian believes that this cannot happen by the exertion of the will. A good person trying to be better, as the will is fundamentally crippled. The Christian believes that good works of the will can only come about by the grace of God. By that grace which brings our natures to perfection. By continual participation in the divine life. By what the Lord himself calls remembrance. Do this in remembrance of me. In the Revolutionary War, the Prussian general Friedrich von Steuben was a pivotal figure. It was von Steuben that instilled strong military discipline in Washington's army as they encamped for the winter at Valley Forge. Some historians say that as many as 60% of these men were, to put it simply, criminals, given to brawling and insubordination and theft. They were dying of smallpox and dysentery. And this Prussian general remarked about these Americans that if you told them what to do, as he was accustomed to training European troops, they would refuse. Obviously, being a Teutonic type, he was one to say, yes, sir, I will do exactly what you say, even though I don't understand it. These Americans were different. If you told them why they should do it, they would do it with excellence. But if you commanded them to do it, they would revolt. And more important, if you told them why they should do it, they would remember to do it, and they would do it with excellence. Von Steuben understood that in order to solve the outward problems in the camp, and there were many, he had to reach into the will, reach into the heart. And that was the opportunity. These men, who were fundamentally disordered, insane in fact, scrappy, a bunch of colonials 
for all their love of fighting and drinking, their minds were filled with really good ideas. Ideas of liberty and democracy, and their hearts were filled with love for their homeland, not the land across the Atlantic that they had never been to, but the very land they had farmed and explored. It was this army, an army which suffered death, sickness, and hunger, that would ultimately prevail. In like manner, Paul reminds the church at Ephesus, something he had probably taught them before. Put on the armor of God. He reminds them that they are engaged in a battle, not against flesh and blood, but against cosmic powers, the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. This is the why of the armor of God. Cosmic powers. Unfortunately, what this image often reinforces is the idea that evil comes from outside of us and not from within. As a priest, I've often been forced against my will to go to VBS. And there will occasionally be one on the armor of God and a tacky little song to go with it. And, you know, look, I get people loving VBS. I do not like it. It's just me, okay? So don't get offended and say, he doesn't like VBS. No, we're not doing that. It's this problem of, like, handing kids swords and saying, go out and fight, you know, this unseen enemy that's out there. It's like, you know, the enemy is right inside you. The problem is with you. A closer look at Ephesians 6 reveals that the armor is actually all about the interior life. It's about being a people of truth, a people of righteousness, readiness, faith, and constant prayer. In fact, only one bit of the armor is a weapon, the sword of the Spirit. I would say that actually reveals something very deep. That Paul is recalling these Christians and us today to understand that the grace of inward transformation is our greatest defense and our greatest weapon against darkness and evil. If you come here today with dissonance and chaos in your interior life, know first that it is the will of God to transform you to the very core. If you experience dissonance and chaos in your interior life, know this, you are not alone. This is common to everyone. But it is the will of God nonetheless to transform you. If you tried years and years of behavior modification, schedules, habits, apps, good gracious, apps for that, and have found it underwhelming, know that we serve a God who desires to bring about renewal and restoration of hearts and minds, most specifically your heart and your mind. If you are weary because of sin, feeling deeply the shame and the regret, I want to say to you personally that I have learned late in life the power of this interior transformation by the Lord's grace. When I neglect the interior life, I am most vulnerable to sin and temptation. When I neglect to do the inner work, I become a mess of my own making. My sanity is not on display. 
But when I'm willing to do the interior work, to surrender my inmost parts to the Lord, to the Lord's grace, good things come. And as a final and practical matter, I want to encourage you in the practice of sacramental confession and spiritual direction. This is, this is, you know, I, I, I say this thinking that it might be obvious, but, you know, Father, can I ask you? Does someone wanting to make their confession bother you? <laughs> it doesn't bother me at all. You're not messing up my schedule. I don't, I will stop literally everything to do this. Many of you have taken advantage of this and can testify to the power of it. I can tell you that um, there have been people who have come to confession and, and they've come away saying, you know, I've spent hundreds and hundreds of dollars on therapy and this was free and I think far more effective. I found time and again that when I turned to the Lord to cleanse me from my secret faults by simply disclosing them, their power is taken away. Only take care and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.